Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Well, film is all about the director, you know, theater of which I've done a lot. Unfortunately, when it's time for the first night, the director has to go and sit at the back of the auditorium and fret, and they have no control whatsoever. But in film and in television, I mean, they are in control of where they're pointing the camera and then ultimately in the edit, what they choose to use. So you have to trust them. You have to trust that they're good filmmakers and they know how to make a film. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Push the Envelope. I'm the AV Club's editor-in-chief, Patrick Gomez, and on this week's episode, we'll be taking a trip down memory lane with Kingsman 1917 and Temple star Mark Strong as he takes a look back at his random roles. But first, I am joined by our very own Katie Reif and Alex McLevy to discuss what's been going on in horror this year as we all prepare for a very odd and remote uh, Halloween. Thank you all for, for joining me. Hi. <laughs> hey, my pleasure. Um, you know, as as we head into our October 31st, uh, because 2020 is being 2020, we <laughs> we are not celebrating in the ways we, we usually do. I, I, you know, living in Los Angeles, I love going to, we have Senespia, which is a screening series that they do oh, at yeah. the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which is great. Um, and traditionally, that's all during the summer, but they usually have something that goes on during, during the Halloween yeah. time. And there's usually tons of stuff like that. Uh, and unfortunately, we cannot have communal experiences in that way, or at least should not be um, having those. So I'm glad that you both are here to talk a little bit about what's been going on in the festival space with horror, as well as video on demand. So um, I'm looking forward to this as a, as a fan of horror. I, I miss being able to go to a theater and hearing hearing everyone else scream alongside of me, and then maybe a stranger grabbing your arm. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, you guys have you guys have gotten to enjoy a, a lot of horror at home. <laughs> Almost too much. <laughs> Almost too much. And this is coming from me. <laughs> <laughs> That is true. When I when I knew we wanted to do something that was pegged to Halloween or spooky season, which I swear I never heard before this year, but now is everywhere. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I knew you two were were obviously uh, our resident experts and had to get you on here, Katie. I, I want to start with you and hear a little bit about what the um, horror festivals, which happen every year, have been like during d- during this pandemic. Yeah, so usually on the film festival circuit, there's kind of two different circuits that run uh, alongside each other, and there's some overlap, but not entirely. So you have like your your major festivals, uh, which is stuff like TIFF, New York Film Festival, Cannes, Berlin, which are, uh, I suppose, all-purpose sort of festivals that show all genres, which does include horror. 
And uh, then you have the genre festivals, which is a smaller but growing group of festivals that specialize in what they call genre film. And horror is kind of the bedrock of that, but it all it can include all sorts of things, action, sci-fi, even more surreal comedy will play at one of these type of festivals. Just anything that falls under the umbrella of the fantastic or the psychotronic, whichever term you like to use. Um, I just like the way that sounds. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, but this year, yeah, obviously those have gone online along with all the other festivals. And, uh, usually I cover the genre festival beat, but this year I covered TIFF as well, because that is a virtual experience, which, you know, does eliminate the travel costs that normally come with that sort of thing. And all the, all the festivals going online, it's basically similar, but different, different festivals emphasize different things. Some offer their movies on demand, some geo-lock them for certain regions for a lot of complicated rights reasons. Some have some online parties and happy hours to try to replicate the festival experience, and some are relying more on panels and uh, taped discussions to kind of give pass holders something a little extra on top of the, uh, you know, the movies that you normally watch because... The events and the Q&As and the parties and things like that, those are much of a reason that people go to festivals as anything else. And I covered a few different festivals this year, like I mentioned. Um, Nightstream Festival was one that really emphasized uh, the parties and the happy hours to try to give people the social experience as well. And Salem Horror Fest was one that was more along the lines of a um, more of a con I guess they had a lot of lectures, a lot of panels, a lot of taped Q&As. I did one with John Waters for that festival, which was really fun. And I did one with Mary Heron for Nightstream. So, so yeah, it's different, but the same. It's the most interesting thing for me has been seeing what the different festivals kind of emphasize. Yeah, well, and we're going to get to that. And Alex, I'd love to hear from you a little bit about, uh, because, you know, I think it's particularly in the, in the last few years, we've started to see video on demand become something, you know, it used to be, you have a column called Home Video Hell, and it used to be a place that had a lot of very odd selections that just didn't have a right fit to either go straight to a, a network or to be released in theaters but we we've now entered this this new phase where video on demand aside from even the pandemic reasons of having to release stuff in that in that uh, area instead of in theaters has has it's really grown um into into a place that that has all types of uh, entertainment yeah very much so i mean when i first i think started writing home video hell entries and i know katie's done a few of them as well but i think and i think probably around the same time uh, was actually when we officially changed, you know, the rules for that feature mm-hmm. so to include not just things that go uh, what we used to think of as, you know, home video straight to DVD, VHS, that kind of thing. Uh, and instead started including streaming releases because at this point, I mean, a lot of streaming sites are sort of the new home video release. Like it's, it's VOD is the new equivalent of direct-to-video DTV. So yeah, so what you're seeing is this explosion of you know, not just specific, you know, genre-specific streaming services. We're going to be talking about Shudder, for example, the horror streaming service in a little bit here, but all sorts of different, you know, ways in which these these movies, these tiny little labors of love can sort of find homes for people that are is not so, it's not so tough to find as it used to be. 
Yeah. Well, um, so we keep things mixing up. Um, why don't we, I had each of you kind of prepare three that you wanted to discuss, uh, three films. Um, so why don't we kind of just switch off and, and Katie start with you with, with your first selection. So I am on the festival beat. So a couple of these films are uh, not available for you to watch right now. They're a bit of a tease, creating some suspense. Um, and the first one is a film that played at TIFF in their Midnight Madness section, which is arguably the most prestigious place for a horror movie to debut. They debuted the new Halloween a couple years ago. But this year, the audience award winner was Shadow in the Cloud, which is a film by Roseanne Lang. She's an Australian filmmaker. And this one is very interesting. It is in the style of a sort of Rocketeers type of thing, where it's set in the 1940s. And it is uh, on a bomber over the Pacific. So you have a Chloe Grace Moretz stars, and she plays a... So she gets on this plane... And she has the secret, top secret package that she needs to protect. And she's the only woman on the plane. And so the men all, you know, are being intimidating and gross to her. And they put her in the bottom of the plane in this little buttress that hangs off the bottom. And there's a window in it so you can see all the way down to the ground. And then while she's protecting this this very delicate package, suddenly she hears scratching sounds on the outside of the plane. And akin to that famous Twilight Zone episode, she sees a monster on the wing of the plane. And that also ties into uh, the origin of gremlins. You know, like everybody thinks of them like Gizmo and Joe Dante. But it originally came from World War II. And gremlins were what pilots called strange things that they would see on the wings of their planes. Or if there was a malfunction, a, a, like an, an engine malfunction that no one could explain, they say, oh, gremlins did that. So this is the original World War II definition of gremlins. And it turns into a... Sort of a uh, combination horror adventure where, um, you know, the monster starts causing havoc on the plane. And there's a lot, if you're afraid of heights, this movie will really freak you out because there's a lot of shots from the gun turret looking straight down. And it's just a really fun, pulpy monster movie, a fun adventure. I have to say, uh, one, the, like even just your description of some of this was, was giving me like goosebumps, but I, had made an offhand comment to my husband the other day about that Twilight Zone episode, which I mm-hmm. figured like everyone, uh, literally everyone and their mother knew, and he had no idea oh, um, really? what I was talking about, and I was just fascinated. I was like, this is like the episode everyone knows. Uh, you know, there's a handful. <laughs> um, so I was excited to hear that referenced here, and I'm going to tell him after this recording that um, <laughs> that this is just proof uh, that I was right, which is always oh. important. <laughs> oh, and I should add that the film's director, Roseanne Lang, she is actually uh, from New Zealand, and she'd probably be very mad if she heard I called her Australian. <laughs> they have that rivalry down there. <laughs> She's actually from New Zealand. <laughs> I'm sure she will appreciate the correction. <laughs> um, so, uh, Alex, why don't you take us down one of your picks? All right. Well, I figured I would start off with an actual film that was included in the Home Video Hell feature. Uh, so you can check this out on the site and read more about it if uh, if you're intrigued by this uh, description. But we're going to move from the creepiness of Katie's pick to a much sillier pick, which is uh, a movie called We Summon the Darkness. Uh, and this is very much in the sort of horror comedy vein. Uh, it stars Alexandra Daddario. And it's directed by Mark Myers, who I think probably most people know for his film My Friend Dahmer. Uh, but if you like that film, do not go into this expecting a similar tone. Uh, this is a much lighter, <laughs> much goofier film uh, where it's, you know, three young, you know, 20-something metalhead women on their way to a concert. 
you know, they go and they meet up with a few guys, decide it would be fun to keep partying after the concert. So they go back to Alexandra Daddario's, uh, her character's house, her parents' house. And uh, needless to say, from there, the night does not go quite as they expect. I don't want to say too much about it, but it's very fun. Katie's seen it, I know, and also likes it. It's It's got a great twist, a great plot. Um, some goofy stuff happens, but it's it's definitely a good movie. Somebody's looking for something that's still in the horror genre, but uh, doesn't really feel like getting too scared. <laughs> yeah, this movie has the most hilarious cameo I have seen in a while. I'm almost tempted to spoil it because it's such a it's such a good one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to say, uh, speaking of the home video hell piece, uh, that was a movie that I think I 100 percent would have written off as as something that was kind of burned off. But your piece made me maybe you want to watch it. So definitely check that piece out uh, if you have not already or if your great description didn't already move someone to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, Katie, we're back to you. Okay, so my second pick premiered at the Fantasia Film Festival over the summer, which is a film festival based in Montreal. It is um, the oldest festival of its kind. It's been around since the early 2000s and actually played a big role in sparking the J-horror craze in America in the early 2000s. They were one of the first festivals in North America to kind of bring Japanese uh, horror, that particular wave of it, over to this part of the world. So props to Fantasia, you know. Uh, so this film... I saw at that festival and it's called The Columnist and it will have a special resonance to anyone who has had a problem with trolls on the internet in the past. Uh, it is, uh, I guess you could call it a comedic black comedy slasher hybrid. Uh, it, it's directed by a director named Ivo Van Art and it is about a columnist, the newspaper columnist, her name is Femka, and she basically is driven to murder by all the crazy trolls that get in her comments. And in the film, she writes these really mundane sort of commentary in the newspaper, and they really play up this contrast. Uh, so she writes one column in the movie called I Don't Like Soup, and she gets death threats from a column called I Don't Like Soup. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so she goes on a sort of... Um, American psycho style uh, slasher rampage because she's driven over the edge by trolls, which I think is something that all of us could maybe find a little bit cathartic. <laughs> I don't have any idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, uh, McLevy, let's let's hear from you. All right, so uh, my next pick is one that people can find on the, I mentioned it before, the streaming service Shudder, which is a fantastic uh, horror-centric streaming service, five bucks a month. Uh, I'm not being paid to say this. I'm just encouraging everybody to sign up for it because I really do think it's fantastic. And if you're at all a fan of scary movies, it's worth your time. But uh, this film is called The Beach House. And this is a movie, it was made, the director, Jeffrey Brown, it's his first feature film. You wouldn't know it, though, by seeing it because it's a wonderfully shot little... Uh, slice of horror, sort of combination, it starts off H.P. Lovecraft style, I would say, meets body horror is kind of the best way to describe it. Uh, it's a young couple arrives at uh, exactly the title place, a beach house, to sort of work on their relationship. It's owned by his parents. Uh, it's sort of a classic situation, you know, that him and his girlfriend are sort of slowly moving in different directions in life. But what happens is a friend of his father's, another couple, ends up actually being in the house at the same time. And so they end up sharing it for the night and having dinner together. Uh, and while they're doing this and spending having this evening together, 
these, this strange sort of fog with eerie lights in it sort of drifts over the mainland. And as anybody who's ever seen a horror movie knows, that's never a good thing. Uh, <laughs> and so very quickly, uh, things start to happen to them. They wake up not feeling quite the same in the morning and things go very, very south very quickly. Uh, it's gross, it's grisly, it's artfully constructed, it's everything you could want in a in a creepy little nasty slice of slice of horror. Yeah, there's one, uh, we premiered a clip from this movie on the AV Club, if you are curious about the kind of horror that's in it. It's a pretty gross clip, I was pretty excited to land it. <laughs> I remember seeing, I, that was actually what made me, Katie, when you posted, that was what made me want to check out the film, was I, I, there's something oh, that yes. happens, there's something that happens to a foot, and it's something that should never happen to any foot in the, ever. Oh, and that's, yeah, oh, oh. Um, Everybody's yes, got check. their thing that they don't like. <laughs> Eyes, yeah. feet, teeth. <laughs> mm, yep. Nope. Don't even... Yep. <laughs> uh, all right, Katie, uh, why don't you give us uh, your last pick? Sure. My last pick I would uh, is actually not a horror film, but if you're a fan of horror films, its particular uh, dark comedy pitch will probably be very appealing to you. You will probably find it very funny. It's a film called 12 Hour Shift, which was actually written and directed by Bria Grant, who is an actress who has appeared in a lot of horror films, so horror fans will probably know her name. This is her second feature that she made, and it stars another actor who um, horror fans will probably know, which is Angela Bettis. She played the title character in Lucky McKee's May a absolute classic of uh, weird girl cinema. <laughs> and in this one, uh, Angela Bettis plays a, she plays a night nurse at a hospital in Arkansas who is working a 12-hour shift, thus the title of the film. And over the course of this shift, a lot of things, I mean, a lot of things end up going wrong and they, and it all pivots around the fact that this nurse and her coworkers have established a black market organ ring that they are running out of the hospital. So basically when a, um, let's say a patient dies, they'll like steal the, their liver and sell it on the black market. But things go comically awry. David Arquette shows up as an escaped convict. It's very bloody. I mean, things are awry if David Arquette shows up. <laughs> <laughs> it's very bloody, very funny black comedy that I would definitely recommend. And I'm excited to see what Bria Grant does as a director going forward. Fun. Um, all right. McLevy, we're, we're to you for your final pick. All right. So for my last one, I chose another film also on Shudder, so available now for anybody who wants to see it. But this is actually an Indonesian film. Uh, it's called Impetigo. Uh, now, the reason I was excited to check it out in the first place is because the director, Joko Anwar, uh, did a film that made a big splash internationally a couple years ago called, it was a remake of Satan's Slaves, which was originally mm -hmm. a 1982 film. But he remade it, an Indonesian version of it, and uh, Katie and I both actually saw it, I think at the same time, maybe even at the Cinepocalypse Film Festival here in Chicago, and we thought it was great. So this is his newest horror film from this year, and uh, he's got a very sort of great, grand, old-school, uh, classical, you know, very much in the tradition of Val Luton. I think of him almost maybe as sort of the Indonesian James Wan in some ways. Uh, mm, yes, totally. Yeah, he has the same. So if you like films like The Conjuring, that series... I think people would very much be interested in checking out Impetigo. This one, it's, you know, another very simple, classic, traditional horror setup. Uh, this young woman 
you know, who was never knew her parents, uh, but she finds this old photograph that suggests that they were in fact rich and have this old house in the village where she was born. And so she travels back to see if maybe she can, she owns this house so she could get some money, solve all her money woes, her and a friend go. And when they get to the town, very quickly, it's apparent that something isn't quite right. Uh, There are no children to be seen anywhere except for these three strange girls that she uh, she continually catches at the edge of her field of vision. And so they start to explore her connection to this town and why, you know, why her family had this this big house here. And it it unspools from there, you know, in a very sort of classical tradition. It's this, it's very grand, you know, it's almost Spielbergian at times in, in the sort of, in Anwar's command, I think of cinematic language. But yeah, it's a great... You know, I'd call it a four quadrant crowd pleaser uh, in the horror genre. <laughs> if I may add, Alex, uh, I'm actually really excited about Indonesian horror right now. It's something that I've been getting more into uh, recent. And, uh, you know, they also had a bit of a horror wave back in the 80s. And a lot of the movies that you're seeing coming out of Indonesia right now are remakes of ones that were in the 80s. For example, there was another film called Queen of Black Magic that played the Fall Horror Fest, which I believe Joko Anwar wrote that one, but it was a different director. And that's a remake of an 80s movie. And I think Indonesian horror is so interesting because, like you said, they do, they take these very classical approaches and put a specific sort of set of cultural iconography on top of it, which is really interesting. You'll see elements of like black magic horror movies movies which come out of Hong Kong, which is a lot of like really kind of goopy, gross imagery. And a lot of roller a lot of these Indonesian horror films are just straight roller coaster rides. So if you just kind of want a really intense but fun experience, I think an Indonesian horror movie would probably set you right. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of them are great. Yeah. So if you like this one, there's plenty others to check out that are coming out right now that are, yeah, Mm -hmm. as you say, are I think equally exciting. Mm hmm. There's another one called May the Devil Take You Too, which is directed by another Indonesian director named Timo Tahanto that's coming out on uh, Shudder next week, actually. So thanks, Shudder. <laughs> yeah, you know, I have to say I don't have Shudder currently, but you you may have convinced me, uh, Alex, <laughs> to, to go ahead and get it, particularly uh, to have some stuff to watch over this Halloween weekend. Um, so I appreciate both of you guys for being here and, and walking us through all of this. And I have to say... If you are not a fan of horror, then we certainly have other content, but uh, but this is not, maybe not the week for you for avclub.com. <laughs> but if you are, we are in the middle of our Horrors Week right now, which has tons of content all about horror and scary movies and things that go bump in the night and book, like all, all different aspects of things that might get your heart racing uh, and ways to celebrate at home while socially distant. Uh, so plenty of other recommendations uh, at avclub.com. Some of them uh, from Alex and Katie, who again, thank you all so much for, for being here. And uh, I look forward to having you back on the show soon. Absolutely. And I will say on AV Club, we do keep in mind people who have a low tolerance for scares. Um, So if you check out some of our past Horrors Week content, you'll find some information on movies that you can watch that, you know, will will, uh, devastate you too badly. (laughs) Which I appreciate. Um, So no, thank you both for being here. uh, And thank you all for listening. But don't go anywhere because we are not done yet. Uh, We're going to transition now over to welcoming our own Mara Eakin who got the chance to speak to Mark Strong recently going over his many, many random roles. Thanks for joining us, Mara. Hey, Patrick. Thank you. Of course, of course. Uh, so longtime listeners of Push the Envelope, of course, as, as long time as you can be, may be familiar with the Random Rolls franchise from our Gugu Mabatha Ra episode. But for those that are not, Mara, why don't you give us the elevator pitch of what Random Rolls is? 
Random Rolls is a long, long time AV Club feature that we've been doing for over 10 years. I mean, at least as long as I've been at the company. Basically, the gist was it started with character actors, and most of the time is character actors. And it's or people that you just see when you're watching a movie and you're like, hey, there's that guy. And it's talking to those types of people, actors in general, about different roles they've had over their career. Generally, we like to pick someone with at least 50 IMDb credits, if not 100, and uh, just talking to them about all sorts of different stuff. New stuff they've worked on, the first thing they were ever in, something you might have forgotten they were in, stuff like that. And so I know you were super excited to get to speak to Mark Strong. Yeah, I really love Mark Strong. Like, I think he's an amazing actor, and I love things that he, he's been in. And then he was just, like, the nicest person. It was like... <laughs> There's a video on our site so you can see what he looks like and what he was talking to me. But he was, like, up in the attic in the dark, and he just had, like, a lamp on. So it was, like, talking to him in a cave. And it was it was really lovely. He was a very sweet guy. And he's worked with a lot of people like Matthew Vaughn, Guy Ritchie, Colin Firth, uh, some other people. But where he's worked with them, like, five, six, seven times. So I think that really speaks to people liking him as well. So I really thought it was interesting. Yeah, and you spent a lot of time on a film set with with someone. So for the fact that people wanted to continue working with him says a lot just there. Yeah, I absolutely agree. He's a lovely guy. I love it. Well, let's let's get to it. Let's get right to your conversation with Mark Strong. Hello. Mara, hello. How are you? How are you? I'm very good. I'm up in the uh, attic of my house and um the the lighting up here is very minimal, so uh, I haven't done it on purpose to try and look spooky and strange, but hopefully it'll work and be okay. I think it's totally fine, and it fits with what we're talking about. So I have some questions for you about your career. Sure. We'll start with Temple. Tell me what sort of drew you to that project. I know your wife works on it as well, so I'm wondering... You know, there's a lot of like emotional connection to that show, I have to imagine. Yeah, my wife is a very successful producer in her own right. She's worked um, at the BBC and Channel 4 here in the UK. She was a commissioning editor, um, a producer, and she ran Ridley Scott's company for a time and made movies with him, but then decided that she wanted to kind of go on her own and develop her own production company. And, uh, you know... She'd been doing her work, I'd been doing my work. And then the point came where we just went, well, why don't we work together? You know, I felt like I was working with other people and she was choosing other actors. And we thought, well, why don't we, you know, we can do this ourselves. So we were looking for a project for a long time and happened to be watching uh, one night the pilot of a, of a Norwegian show that we'd been recommended. And uh, we were at home on the sofa and, and she said, I wonder if someone's got the rights to this. And uh, I thought, I have no idea. Anyway, a few days later, she'd organized the whole thing. We were on a plane to Oslo. We went to meet the guys who made the original Valkyrian, it's called, and asked them if they would let us have the rights. And they liked us and we got on and they said, sure. So we, we took their project and adapted it and ran with it. It's interesting to me making a show with your wife, too, about this guy's extreme love for his wife and what he'll do to, to explore that. Well, we, we knew that what, what I was looking for was a character who's conflicted. I think that always makes the best drama. I mean, every actor will tell you that. If you can find a character that has lots of light and shade, they're always the best. And Daniel is morally and ethically compromised for the whole of the first season. But we, we thought that the way that you can keep people, you know, interested in him without losing 
sympathy for him because in a way you need to be on his side is is to make the bedrock of the reason that he's doing all of this stuff the fact that he's trying to save his dying wife so the whole thing is happening for love and um it's just that he's the kind of guy that in order to leap hurdles which is what surgeons do whenever they come across a problem you can't panic you just have to kind of deal with that problem and move on to the next problem and then deal with that problem and that's essentially what Daniel does during the series so we found a character that i really wanted to play that was conflicted and interesting and liza my wife found a show that i think that she really wanted to make because at its core it's a love story mm-hmm. yeah of course he makes some decisions even from the get that are that may not play out how he he might ideally want them to. So, because maybe he's uh, compromised in some way, you know, like maybe he's not thinking the most clearly. Yeah. I think it's more the fact that he is an everyman and he is thrown into an extraordinary situation. So I suppose having the made, having made the kind of crazy choice to try and keep his wife alive when she has specifically asked him not to do that, should the medication that she's taking not work, um, he makes that crazy choice because he can't let her go. And in keeping her alive, he has to form an unholy alliance with a character who has access to space underneath London Underground, you know, in the tube tunnels under the underground. And the best thing he could think of in the moment is to ask that guy if uh, he could use the space under there. And in return, the guy says, sure, if you're prepared to do some kind of off the grid surgery for me, we can make some money. So he gets into this odd couple alliance with this guy. Uh, It's a symbiotic relationship that allows the guy to make a bit of money, but allows him to keep, allows Daniel to keep his wife alive. So you guys are on season two now, you've started filming it. Um, Tell me what that's like sort of working, working now. Well, what was great about the first season was we had a blueprint. So we took that and adapted it. We didn't copy it by any means. I think the Scandinavian vibe is very different from the British one. And so we, we took the characters really and the idea of, of this surgery underground and, and uh, ran with that. But it meant that essentially we did have a blueprint. Whereas this second season now, we're really excited about it because uh, it's us. We formed a writer's room, we got some people together, we now knew who the characters were that we'd um, developed, and we decided to, to, to take them and um, just give them more stuff to do. So each of those characters that you see in the first season become kind of even more vivid in the second. And we're shooting it right now, we're very excited to be doing it. But I'm really hoping that people will gravitate to the first season and find something that they like, which will hook them into the next one. I think it's, yeah, of course they will. Um... To talk about some other stuff, I mean, I think a lot of people in the States might know you from the Kingsman series, which you've worked as one of the number of times you've worked with Matthew Vaughn. How did that relationship develop and how, you know, why do you think you guys keep going back to the well? I'm really proud of the fact that I tend to work with directors often more than once. I mean, I've worked with Matthew now four times, I think. I've worked with Guy Ritchie three times. I've worked with Ridley Scott a couple of times, um, all British directors. And, um, and there is a sort of uh, a certain pride, I think, in the fact that they, they trust you enough to ask you back. Matthew, I got to know because basically I'd, I'd done a, a TV show over here in the UK called The Long Firm, in which I played a kind of 1960s gangster 
and Guy Ritchie had seen it and wanted to put me in one of his movies. And he and Guy, Guy and Matthew were partners. You know, they made Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch and all this stuff together. But Guy decided that he wanted me in his movies. And I think Matthew probably took a look and thought, I want him in my movies as well, when Matthew started to become a director. And um, we just we just got on, you know. And I, I think also when you know the dance with a director, you know what I mean? When you know each other so well that you don't have to spend a lot of time like worrying about what you're saying, how you're saying it, whether someone's going to understand what it is you're trying to say. When you have the dance, you know the moves with each other. It just makes the whole process so much simpler. And I found working with Matthew to be really easy. And I think he felt the same. I have to imagine there's a degree of trust there too, where you're like, no, I know that these are good projects. I know that they're going to be well handled. I know they're going to be good. I know the world's going to love them. Well, film is all about the director, you know, theatre, of which I've done a lot. Unfortunately, when it's time for the first night, the director has to go and sit at the back of the auditorium and fret, and they have no control whatsoever. But in film and in television, I mean, they are in control of where they're pointing the camera, and then ultimately in the edit, what they choose to use. So you have to trust them. You have to trust that they're good filmmakers and they know how to make a film, because everything that you're doing is in their hands. And also you have to like them, you know, you have to kind of be, yeah, get on with them, I think. Otherwise it makes the whole filming process a bit of a downer. And I have to say, Matthew and I got on very well, as I did with Guy, as I did with Ridley. Um, speaking of a process, you were in 1917 last year, you know, not in a lot of it because no one was in a lot of it besides <laughs> besides those two guys. But what was that like? That was, this movie was such a big swing. Phenomenal experience. Um, very unusual. Sam is another one of those directors. I did, a, I did a couple of plays with Sam when he was running a theatre called the Donmar Warehouse in London back in the sort of early 2000s. And we did Uncle Vanya and Twelfth Night together and we took it over to New York and we played it at BAM. And so I knew him from that time. And when he basically called me and said, look, I've got this part in this film that I'm doing. It's not a big part, um, but there's a bunch of other guys in it. They don't have big parts either. It's really about these two young boys. But I think you'd really suit the part. I didn't hesitate for a second. I mean, I've always loved working with Sam. He's such a he's such a meticulous director who creates such a lovely atmosphere on set. There's never any panic. It's always very well controlled. And uh, I, I went to, to go and do 1917, not really knowing what it was going to be like. All I knew was that I had two scenes and those scenes were going to be played in real time. They were actually, I think, a month apart. One was in Wiltshire in the countryside and one was up in Glasgow. And it was a one-shot deal. I mean, you rehearsed a little sequence and then you carried on rehearsing it until you felt you had it. And then you shot it a few times. And once you had it, uh, there were no close-ups. There was no cutting in. There was no changing lenses. That was it. And so it's the quickest, easiest job I think I've ever had, but one of which I'm the most proud because I thought that film was extraordinary. extraordinary. I mentioned going to see it would be such a different experience where you're like, I really don't know the whole story here. I'm like how it came together and I wasn't, and it's beautiful and so well done. Speaking of people you've worked with a number of times, you've been in at least five movies with Colin Firth. Can you talk about Fever Pitch? That movie is, was such a phenomenon um, or has such a cult audience. And maybe in the U.S., when we think of Fever Pitch, we think of the U.S. adaptation, which is not nearly as good. Right. It's about baseball, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, FIFA, I am an first of all, I, I am an Arsenal supporter. So, so that team is my team. I grew up in an area of London called Islington, which is where Arsenal, uh, the football team, were basically based, and they've been around since the you know late eighteen hundreds. So it's a, a team that's really linked directly to the community. And if you're born there and grow up there, then you have very little choice but to, you know, work out whether or not you're going to be into the football or not into the football. And basically, I loved it. So I'm not a rabid fan, but I, I certainly follow that team. And when I was asked to come in for an audition, and I'd, obviously I'd read Fever Pitch. Fever Pitch is it's really the diary of a football fanatic, but, but I knew that Nick Hornby was a, a fervent Arsenal supporter. I couldn't believe it. You know, I went in and not only did I go in, I, I was just, I, I let them know that I was an Arsenal fan. And I realised that every actor had been in had said, yeah, yeah, I'm an Arsenal supporter. Yeah, yeah, I'm an Arsenal fan because everybody wanted the job. I went back for a recall and I took a photograph of myself in my mum's back garden with me in the football kit, you know, doing a throw in with the ball. And, um, and then discovered that that's not dissimilar to the, the cover of the paperback of Fever Pitch. It's a young boy about the age that I was wearing his Arsenal kit. Anyway, that swung it for me and I got to, do the, to, got to do the film. And it was like art and life meeting. So my, my, my private life, if you like, my, my hobby and love of Arsenal met my, my work life. And that was the first time I think I worked with Colin. We got on really well. It was ironic. They asked us to go to football matches and take a camera with us. Now, now nobody thinks anything of taking a selfie, but we didn't have mobile phones when that film was made. So we were trying to take a selfie with a little Kodak Instamatic camera. This is in a football ground surrounded by loads of men looking at these two guys with their arms around each other, trying to take a photograph of themselves. It wasn't easy, but we did get to go to about five or six games for free for research, you know, and uh, that's kind of the best research that I think I've probably ever had to do. You live in the dream, yeah. That's so funny that I was watching something the other day where everyone had those like little like Canon little like cameras that everyone had for a time. And I was yeah. like, it wasn't that long ago, but it seems like it was a zillion years ago. Like how fast yeah. that time is, how fast technology has advanced. Yeah. We had one of those little clicky box camera things just like that. that you used to buy in like a convenience store. <laughs> and now everyone's got their own camera in their phone, you know? Now they give those away at weddings sometimes for like a, like, isn't this funny? Like how we're doing these? <laughs> like, yeah. whoa. Um, you have played a number of antagonists. <laughs> you know, you played a bad guy in Shazam. You were a bad guy in Greenhearted and Sherlock Holmes, et cetera, et cetera. Why do you think that people like you as an antagonist? And what's been the mo- like the meatiest, most fun to- one to do? Um, I think, for a start, there is a kind of very honorable roll call, isn't there, of British actors going over to the States and playing the bad guy, whether it's Jeremy Irons or Alan Rickman or Anthony Hopkins, you know, there's there's a there's a lot of us who go over and and get our entree playing the bad guy. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think often we haven't been around as child actors or in the business, so we're not known. You know, when you first go over and play that villain, you're probably not as well known as a lot of the American actors are. Also, you have a kind of the accent sets you up as something different, something other. So you can be, you know, like a Russian accent or whatever. You can, you can be the bad guy. But more than that, I genuinely think, you know, we have in our, in our kind of history, Shakespearean characters like Macbeth and Coriolanus and Richard III, who are the bad guys. And they are the leads in their plays. I think the American culture reveres the hero, or certainly used to. I mean, I remember when um, 
Dexter came out, that TV show, I couldn't believe it that the lead was a guy who was actually committing murder. Because up until that point, it always seemed to me that US shows were always, it was always a good guy. It was always a hero. I think The Shield was, was also another time when I saw the bad guy, you know, the main guy was a bad guy. It started to change a little bit in the States, but certainly when I grew up, it was always about the hero in the US, whereas we, we, the Brits weren't afraid to play the bad guy. And actually the bad guy was often the main part. And we were just sort of in touch with that more. So I think when it comes time to do that on screen, it wasn't, um, it wasn't a difficult leap to make. And sometimes I think, you know, you can often play a villain very obviously, very obviously evil or bad. And that's just a bit boring. But as I think we've had to sort of, or I've certainly had a, a, I've grown up kind of making them as interesting as I possibly can. So even if they're not liked, at least they might at least be understood. I hope, I hope it's that anyway. That's why people respond to, to bad guys. And also I think vicariously people live their bad guy fantasies through whatever a bad guy's doing. You know, we don't get to sort of do that stuff uh, in everyday life. Whereas Heroes, which was once Ryan Reynolds once said to me on Green Lantern, the hero is basically designed to sort of throw a punch, crack a smile, kiss the girl. <laughs> you know, you can probably do that in your real life, but you can't vanquish whole planets, you know? I don't think you'd like to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should you wish to do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is funny because I know you even were in a car commercial where it was about how being a bad guy, a bunch of British guys, you know, a bunch of yeah, British yeah. actors. For the Super yeah. Bowl, which is a big deal here. It's funny to think, yeah, that you put that in an interesting way. And also, like, I think the US were only really just realizing that you can center a show around a bad guy, but you have to you have to show why they're a bad guy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you have to show the backstory there. Exactly. Like I say, if you can make them, if not liked, at least understood, then it makes them much more palatable. Yeah. Like breaking bad. Yeah. You'd say. Yes, exactly. There you go. <laughs> Um, you mentioned working with Guy Ritchie a number of times. What makes his sets different? They're very, they're very um, friendly. You know, he's not a shouter. He doesn't have a huge ego. He's very kind of collaborative. He's up for listening to what you've got to say. And um, he's, yeah, he's just very friendly. I mean, when you have that behind the scenes and you feel like you're working with somebody that you could be pals with, it makes the whole process so much easier and so much better. I think people would be surprised because of his tough guy reputation, uh, what a softie he is, to be honest. And I think you can see it in some of his, some of his movies. Unrelated, you have also played a number of spies on <laughs> TV yes. shows and movies. Do you think that's also the accent or why do people look come to you and go, that guy's a C that guy's CIA, that guy's MI6, that guy's whatever? Well, I mean, first of all, spying, you know, the world of spies is inherent. It's, a, it's got inherent drama. It's about betrayal and trust and secrecy and possibly murder and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And it's, it's the stuff of drama really. So, so it's not surprising, especially as we don't really know or understand the world of spying, because I don't know about you, I don't know any spies. And if I do, they certainly haven't told me that they're spies. So we don't really know that world. We're kind of guessing. And um, I think that makes it exotic. Also just, just casting, you know, think of it when you think in your mind, uh, if you were asked to cast somebody in a particular part or you had a particular part and you had to think of somebody, chances are you'll think of somebody who's done something similar recently. 
So I had a whole swathe of bad guys that happened one after the other, largely because I played a bad guy and everyone went, let's get that guy. He's really good at bad guys. And then when I played a spy and I was good at a spy, they went, let's get that guy. He's really good at spies. So I, I honestly think you just, you know, they go in cycles. So at the moment I'm playing kind of um, with Daniel, I suppose I'm playing conflicted, morally challenged characters. That's kind of where I'm at at the moment, having been through out-and-out evil guys and out-and-out mysterious spy-type guys. Is that a conscious decision that you have to make with your career where you're like, enough spies for now? Yeah, you can choose to do that. I mean, I remember, for example, when I was playing a lot of bad guys, I think in one year I played, um, and to answer your earlier question, which I didn't, which which baddie did I really love? And it was, I, I played a character called Frank D'Amico in Kick-Ass. Mm-hmm. And that was such a wild film and unexpected. And that part was so unexpected. I really enjoyed playing that guy, even though he's kind of a scumbag, but it was, it was, um, it was great fun. But somebody did say to me, you've got to be careful. You know, if you play too many bad guys, you'll only ever get seen as a bad guy. And I thought, well, they're all interesting characters. You know, they were great fun to play. And I played Frank D'Amico and Kick-Ass. I played, I think it was uh, Godfrey and Robin Hood, the Russell Crowe one that Ridley directed. And I played, uh, I think, Sherlock Holmes. I played Lord Blackwood in Sherlock Holmes. I think those three movies all happened within the same year. Now, I know they're all bad guys, but they're three incredibly interesting characters to play. So I never thought of them as bad guys. I only looked and thought, are they interesting characters? That, first and foremost, was the thing for me. So I never worried about getting typecast, for example. I just thought, I'm going to keep playing these interesting guys. And then, sure enough, a part came along where... I was cast as what everybody thought was the bad guy, but actually I was the good guy. So it started to work the other way around. (laughs) That's perfect. I think it would be easy to get stuck there, but if you're a good enough actor, you might not. Like Alan Rickman played a lot of bad guys, but that doesn't mean he was stuck as being a bad guy forever, you know? He was a lot of different things. Yeah. Yeah, For me, it's always been variety. And uh, and if you want a long career, you know, you you can just play through a particular type of part for a while and there'll be another one that comes along you know mm-hmm. you even sort of twisted the trope like in the brothers grimsby you played the cia agent but it wasn't quite the serious film that the other ones may have been what was it yeah. like with sasha baron cohen it was insane as you could <laughs> probably imagine um he is a heat ballistic he's like a ballistic missile for comedy He's, he's, looking, he's always looking for the gag, the joke, the thing that will make people laugh. And uh, he's very scientific about it and very meticulous. And actually, when you work with him on set, there's a hell of a lot of improvising. We'd spend hours and hours and hours improvising. We shot, you know, loads and loads of footage, which never made it into the movie. And I was surprised at how, how specific and meticulous he was. I remember there was one point he had to grab my underpants and pull them up to surprise me. And he realised that I was wearing Calvin's, I think. And he went, hang on, do you think your guy would wear Calvin's? Do you think he would? uh," And he was literally, because I think when he, um, and then he told me a story about Borat and said when he played Borat, he didn't watch. He was a bit smelly. I mean, you can't tell that on the film. But he was so deep, sort of undercover, that it meant he was very, very meticulous about everything that was done in the movie. But I I enjoyed that. And I thought, um, yeah, he was great fun. Great fun and worked really hard. It's interesting to get a look into like a singular performer's eye in that sense. Do you know what I mean? Like where you're like, oh, this is a a quick masterclass in how this person does their job. 
Yeah, he had very specific or has very specific ideas about comedy and what works and doesn't work. And there was a sequence, for example, where he was wearing a sort of a funny jester's hat while drinking beer and at the same time peeing into a glass or something. And then the beer was going to come out of the jester's hat and that he was drinking. And, and he, he decided not to use that because he said, there's too much going on. A joke has to be clean if a gag is going to work. It's got to be cleaner than, than that. So um, he threw that idea out. But it, yeah, it was interesting watching him work through stuff like that. What can you think of, not, I mean, in this movie or, I mean, in Brothers Grimsley or in other movies that you've, you've taken from one movie and said, you know, can you think of times on Temple, for instance, when you said, like, I'm going to use this thing Matthew Vaughn said to me or, you know, this scene I did with De Niro or, you know, whatever. Let's use these lessons to make this project better. I don't, I can't think of anything specifically, but you, you certainly do build up a kind of huge reservoir of, of things that you've done. and you know, reactions that you've had to things. And for example, let's take, uh, take something like anger. You know, often anger is required and you have to work out whether you're going to do the same anger every time and whether you're going to use your own anger or whether you're going to use the character's anger and whether that kind of anger is different from another kind, you know. So you build up a different sort of reservoir of, of, um, of reactions and behaviours. I don't think that particularly specific to for me they're not specific to work that I've done but they're just all in there by osmosis they're all rolling around in there so when I read a scene and come across a new scene I tend to just sort of I use instinct rather than take or pluck things from stuff I've done in the past if you went back and watched one of your first tv appearances was on EastEnders if you went back and watched that like what notes (laughs) do you have a sense of what notes you would give yourself it was a while ago Oh my God. Yeah. I think it was the first thing I ever did on camera, to be honest. And, um, somebody just rediscovered it recently. I, I, uh, it wasn't out there and I'd completely forgotten about it. I think what I had back then was a fantastic, um, lack of concern for the artifice of filming. So I just played it like it was completely real. I didn't probably even know where the camera was, you know, whereas over the years I've built up an understanding of how the camera works and how you can use the camera and how lenses work and how different size lenses require different kinds of acting and or performance size. Whereas back then I was just, I was just like doing it like a play because I was involved in the theater at the time. So I, I just, uh, I was very natural. I suppose if I look back, I might give myself a bit of advice about how the camera works and where it is and just be aware of that. And uh, yeah, craft a performance knowing that. Um, you've done, you mentioned the theater a couple of times and you mentioned specific plays, but you've also done, a number of on-screen roles, things that have been put to film a number of times. Like uh, you were in Oliver Twist, you were in Emma, you know, a a number of people played Mr. Knightley. How do you take a role like that and make it your own? You don't, uh, well, I never compare myself to what's gone before. I don't, I don't watch other people's performances because you might inadvertently find yourself taking stuff from them. And so I've never, uh, yeah, I've never used that kind of research before. I kind of just, I just sort of do my own thing. Because if a part is well-written enough, it's all there on the page. You don't need to find out how it was done before. But, you know, again, I'm used to that because in the theatre you do that all the time. You know, if you play Richard III, hundreds of people would have played it before you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at least hundreds, <laughs> if not yeah. thousands. Um, you have been in two different movies called Sunshine. 
<laughs> what do you remember about making the Danny Boyle one? Oh my God. I remember being in the makeup chair for over eight hours. That's what I remember. Getting in, like getting picked up at three o'clock in the morning, traveling across London, getting in a makeup chair at around four and then being meticulously painted with burn. I had to look like a Burns victim, basically. I, I, I played a character called Pinbacker, who was the captain of the first ship that had gone up to the sun, and he got too near the sun and got badly burnt. So I used to basically put that all of that makeup, have that put on me until lunchtime. They'd shoot something else in the morning, and I would do my scenes in the afternoon. And when everybody was saying goodbye at the end, you know, I'd still have an hour and a half, two hours to get all of this stuff off. So um, it was really, uh, it took a long time in makeup, but I thought the effect was amazing. I thought it looked incredible. And I really wanted to have a go at playing a part like that. Because I know Danny, because I'd done a play with him and I'd done a television thing with him. And he said, I want you to come and be in the movie. He said, I don't know what you can play. And I said, I'd like to play that part. And he was never intending to cast an actor as such to play that. But I just wanted to, you know, I wondered if I could transform that much. Because again, that's what I enjoy about acting. If, if, if I can affect come some kind of transformation, that's the bit that's interesting for me. Would you want to do it again? <laughs> if they were like, it's going to be 12 hours. <laughs> I think again, you know, with the knowledge that I now have as a more experienced actor, I might sort of ask about how long I'd end up being in the makeup chair, but yeah, I probably would do it again because I thought the effect was uh, incredible. Same with um, Green Lantern, actually playing Sinestro. My interest in that part was, can we really deliver the guy from the comics onto film? Because he looks so extraordinary in the comics. He's got this big red head. He's got this widow's peak of hair. You know, these, these, these eyebrows, little pencil-thin moustache. And I was just intrigued as to whether we could really recreate that on film, that look. And that was about four hours of makeup. But I thought it was, it was, uh, it was really good. It worked out really well. Speaking of Green Lantern, that movie wasn't super well received and you were in a movie around the same time too john carter which like people didn't really love but you know you're not carrying those movies like how much does that stuff affect you like do you read reviews do you care at all i totally care yeah and it does it does affect me because you work so hard on these things that you want them to succeed you know nobody works on a movie in any capacity half-heartedly and you all do it and you do it and want it to be successful but it is kind of alchemy there are so many components that go into making a successful movie. You can't guarantee that they're all going to work, or even if they do work, that they're all going to fit together perfectly. So I think that's why we keep making movies, because we're chasing, we're chasing that alchemy. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, I care when it doesn't because I feel like all that hard work that everyone has put in has gone for nothing. But it doesn't, it do, I, you know, I don't mind. You just move on. You just you keep going, try again. Yeah, by that time you're on to the next project already and, and the, I don't know, keep it pumping, I guess you would say. Um, yeah. With something like The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance, like I have to imagine it's, you have, you're even more hands-off. Like you do your part, but like what the final product is, is not, you have no impact. <laughs> you have no input in that. Um, what do you like about working on something like that or doing voices? Well, again, because the transformation was really interesting and um, it was something unusual and different. And also it was directed by um, the same chap who uh, directed Grimsby. So he he was a friend and uh, we'd been in the trenches together doing that movie. So when he asked me to come and do it, I I didn't hesitate. But I just liked the idea of, of doing the voice and it being a little Gelflin. 
you know? <laughs> yeah, why not? It was unusual. People love gal sightings. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of, I think the last thing I want to ask you about, at least today, is um, you're in uh, Cruella, which is supposed to come out next year. But, you know, we don't know what your what your role is. I don't know if you can say anything about that. What can you say about that movie and about sort of adapting that beloved character that we've all come to come to hate <laughs> with no backstory? Well, I think, um, I don't know how much I am allowed to say about it, actually, because it's uh, it's not come out. And obviously, you know, I did, I did my my work on it. I, I spent most of my time with Emma Thompson, let me say. So that was an absolute joy. I play Jean the Valet. He's her, he's her butler. She plays a character called the Baroness and has a sort of phenomenal presence on screen and wears the most outrageous, amazing costumes. And, um, and I'm, I'm her sidekick. And I really enjoyed it because it meant I got to sort of be around and chat with her, you know, all the time. And Emma Stone was, was, was really incredibly hardworking and really very good, I have to say. I was, t- I was really impressed with her. Both Emmas, actually, totally impressed with how hard they worked and how much they nailed their characters. I really think people are going to enjoy that movie. I'm sure. Are you drawn to movies? Like, if something's filming in London, are you more likely to do it? Are you more likely to be like, okay, I'll do it? Uh, I don't mind, actually. I will travel. I've worked all over the world and uh, that's part of the joy of being an actor as well is that you can, um, you know, you can find yourself somewhere you never thought you'd ever be and not just on holiday either. You actually live in a place for a while and get to know it a lot better than you would if you were just a tourist. Plus, I'm doing the thing that I love. So I feel very lucky in that respect. What's the most surprising place that you really loved? Well, I did a job in Hawaii, which I remember I was doing a play. I was touring Death of a Salesman. I was playing Biff. And it was a very heavy kind of, it's a very heavy play. And it was quite wintry. And I remember I was in a place called Bath, which is a a small town outside Bristol in the West Country. I mean, just done a matinee, a Wednesday matinee. And it was really raining and it was really cold. And I got a call in between the two shows from my agent who said, "Um, you're off to Hawaii on Sunday. It was the last week of the run. And we were finishing in Bath on the Saturday and she said, you're off to Hawaii on Sunday. How do you feel about that? I went, I'm in, I'm in. And that was the most amazing place I, I got to work because it was so beautiful, obviously. But, you know, I, I've been, um, you know, Australia, Rio. Uh, it's difficult to kind of pinpoint where might be the favourite place because they're all fascinating in their own right. And like I say, the privilege is that you get to live there for a while rather than just visit as a tourist. What was the project in Hawaii? Yeah, it was a movie called To End All Wars with Kiefer Sutherland and Robert Carlyle about prisoners of war in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Mm-hmm. And to film in Hawaii, why not? <laughs> I suppose. Oh my God, yeah, yeah. But you get to make it in Hawaii. Yes. I mean, I'd, I'd love to go back there, but uh, I've never been back since. Okay, one of these days. You're always, yeah. You guys are allowed to come here, we're just not allowed to come there. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I thought, actually, funny enough, Lee's character in, um, in Temple, who was a prepper, Uh now kind of comes into his own a little bit. In fact, he actually mentions a pandemic in the first series, you know, as he's preparing down there in the bunker for the worst. Uh, It's almost prefigures what's, what's, uh, what's kind of happened. And so suddenly his character doesn't seem quite so outlandish after all. Uh, Yeah. And we take him to really interesting places in the second season too. That's a good point because I don't really notice as much like you guys are just all a lot of times you guys are inside, you're in this bunker, and now it's becoming more and more 
obvious, like not more obvious, more acceptable for that to happen. Yeah, yeah. less unusual. I mean, being in one spot. Sure. Well, over the course of the series, because the premise is that um, originally you see this bunker and you think, what a crazy space and what the hell are they doing down there? And actually, that's the strange environment. But over the course of the series, by the end of the episode, by the end of the season, up top is the strange environment, the dangerous place. And actually, the bunker is where everything's quite safe and you've created this embryo family down there. So it's interesting. It, it, it sort of over the course of the series becomes becomes home. And then you just kind of wait for that for that embryo to, to like break. Do you know what I mean? You just wait for someone to trail to trail Lee in. And as happened yeah. in, uh, I want to say, episode three. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm really excited for everyone here in the States to get to see the show if they haven't bootlegged it or something already. And, uh, yeah, well, thanks, Mara. Go catch some sleep. I know it's getting late there. <laughs> it's cracking on, yeah. And I'm up at six again to, to carry on tomorrow. So uh, Congratulations. But anyway, <laughs> it's nice to talk about it. I'm really proud of it. So I'm very happy to talk about it. He really does sound like just like the best guy. I'm so glad you got to spend so much time uh, speaking with him. Yeah, thank you. Um, I really liked it. He's a really nice guy. And I've been thinking since we talked about just the aspect of British people always playing villains and about people playing the same roles again and again and how how people really do it a lot, especially in theater. And I don't know, it's he kind of just changed my mind a little bit about some about some things or maybe look at things a different way, which is, I think is what always what you want in like a good interview or a good interview subject. So I'm very glad I got to do it. Well, I, I'm glad that you did it and that we could listen to it here. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, come and speak about it on Push the Envelope. Mara, where can people find you on the social medias? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Mara E, M-A-R-A-H-E. And you can find Mark Strong on Temple, which uh, is on Spectrum uh, streaming now. Yes, definitely check that out uh, all over Spectrum. And uh, I am very jealous. Uh, there's been there's been some really good Spectrum originals that have not aired anywhere else that I want to get a hold of, but they, they actually don't offer Spectrum where I'm at. So uh, I'm very jealous for those of you that are able to watch it there. I, I'm lucky to have caught some of the stuff on screeners, but uh, that is neither here nor there. What is, is that uh, that's going to do it for us on Push the Envelope. So definitely find Mara on social media, find Mark on Spectrum, and you can find me at at Patrick Gomez LA. That's going to do it for this episode of Push the Envelope, but we will be back next Thursday with all new episode, all new interview, and we hope to find you there. Until then, bye. This episode of the AV Club's Push the Envelope was brought to you by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.